my name may as well be Tony Haddock. It isn't. That doesn't stop most of you lot. Now, I've been helped by loads of people on this search. Lisa Bowerman's name has cropped up a lot, hasn't it? Uh, but then there's been Joe Halliday, Robert Dick, Oliver Crocker, Cliff Chapman, Rob Ross, Ben Jolly, Lee Allen, Steve Hall, and, of course, Jim Bradshaw from BAFTA, oh, and various Facebook and Twitter friends and acquaintances, some of whom I've yet to meet, uh, all there with hints, tips, and suggestions. But this one, I did alone. I had a hunch, and one night... I acted upon it, and it paid off, and I found someone. What a thrill, especially as this is someone else who has never been interviewed by Doctor Who magazine or on the DVD range, and his work outside of Who is pretty impressive as well. Uh, He was the only one of his kind to get a credit in 60s Who, and was always ready to lend a hand, even a sticky one. Uh, And this was done on Skype, by the way, awake at 5.30am I was, and the early part of the recording was lost, due to a technical issue. So the first few minutes are from my backup. So guess what? The technical quality is a bit wayward. But then again, I remember watching Image of the Fendal on a 19th generation bootleg, and that was part of the fun back in the day. I'm just recreating that sort of thing for this Swiss digital age. Three, two, one, and uh, it's... Bright and early in the UK, but not so uh, where the gentleman I am talking to via Skype is uh, at the moment. So I'm going to ask him to tell us who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. <laughs> I'm uh, Victor Retellis, and uh, many, many years ago I, uh, I was a production assistant um, on Doctor Who. And uh, I was working with Douglas Canfield. Uh, that name is probably very familiar to a number of people because he was one of the best directors on things like Doctor Who. Um, and actually, he was a big admirer of yours because you are the only production assistant to get an on-screen credit for the whole of uh, 1960s Doctor Who because of, yeah. um, because of the help you'd given him on Dalek Masterplan, which was a 12-part epic. Um, love affair with Daleks and if anybody could actually see the Daleks in action they would not fall in love with them. It was the most cumbersome and most uncomfortable gadget to be sitting in to work and quite often uh, the people got bogged down. I, I remember doing something on the uh, on the Thames Embankment and the Daleks had to um, race down to the water's edge and of course I couldn't race down they kept sinking into the Mud, so we had to kind of work around it. And uh, I mean, as a director yourself, um, having having to you know direct people is hard enough, but having to direct machines and make it good must have been quite a quite a task for Douglas. And yet he he always, it seemed to me, produced you know some of the very best work on Doctor Who. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Um, because um, Douglas had a wonderful eye for um, inanimate objects. I don't mean to belittle Douglas. Um, he he did not get, get on so well with people. He kind of left that to the actors and to me. But he was wonderful at cutting. He knew exactly what 
wonderful gadgets that we have at our disposal. Um, we were working with such cumbersome cameras. Um, the Ampex cameras were so, so heavy. And uh, whatever filming we did was on 35mm, I seem to recall. 60mm came in much, much later. And obviously your work uh, on Doctor Who uh, brought you into contact with William Hartnell. What do you remember of him? Ah, dear old Bill Hartnell. Now, by the time I got to Bill Hartnell, um, he was just going off the boil. Now, Bill Hartnell had been one of the main actors in, uh, um, in, in the cinema twenties uh, and thirties, I suppose. But when he came to us, he was um, he was getting a bit irritated with life. And now I was a foreigner, and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to get this man to like me. It took me about oh, about nine months working with him, um, and I became the best in his eyes, which wasn't particularly good for me because all the other PAs hated me. Um, I was the only one, actually, who got a Christmas present from Bill Hartnell. Um, he gave me one of those terrible leather ties, you know, that, oh. that looked like shoelace. And, uh, of course, I never wore it, but uh, I said thank you, and uh, it was quite a thing to have got something from Bill Hartnell. And so, you've touched on that, you, you're, you're not from the UK, so how did, you, how did you end up there? How did you end up at the BBC, and... Did you find that you had to, therefore, work harder because of your background? Uh, second question, yes. Uh, how did I end up there? Well, when I was 18, I was doing national service, and the parades were usually at 5.30 in the morning, so we were lined up on parade, and I looked at the sky, and the sky was just amazing, absolutely amazing, all the colours. That, first of all, knocked me for six. And the second thing was, um, we had visual education and it was um, these were productions made by the Moody Film Institute of America and they showed um, um, clouds uh, scurrying across the sky in other words uh, slow motion and accelerated motion flowers uh, going from birth to death in a few seconds and I was totally blown away and I decided at that moment I wanted to become a film director so when I got out of the uh, National Service, uh, which we did at Pacapanyol, I thought, right, I will write and direct my own film. Now, this is, this is in those days, the equipment was cumbersome. You had to shoot on 16mm film, which uh, then had to be sent away to Kodak to be processed, and two weeks later you got it back and you saw that it was out of focus or something was wrong and you start all over again. Um, in order to this film, I had to build a set. Um, I remember building a cobblestone street in my back garden using my dad's makeshift garage as part of the set. And so I shot this little masterpiece. It took me two years to actually shoot it. So I worked in backstreet um, cutting rooms doing various odd jobs. Finally, I applied to the BBC and they said, oh, Can we see your film? They saw my film and they said, Okay. Direct. And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm a mere Australian. Um, I want to see how you do things. I was so impressed with the Brits. And so I, I was an assistant for about five years. And then I finally got the chance to direct. And I said, yeah, I'll resign from the Beeb and become a freelance director. And this is what, what happened. My first 
production was um, for Gerard Glaister um, in, in Glasgow, a production called This Man Craig. And that was an association that lasted uh, a long while then, because you worked with Gerard Glaister. <laughs> oh, yes, oh, yes. Cold it. Jerry and I had this, this wonderful relationship. I hated and loved the man. Um, he, um, he kind of goaded me quite often to bring out qualities I never thought I had. In fact, in, in many, many years ago, um, when I was in Germany, I went through the wars in Germany, and with Jerry Glaster, I fought about three uh, world wars with him. Uh, that is on the screen. Um, I, I was just looking at a letter from from Jerry Glaster here. Uh, it was the last episode in in Colditz, I think it was, and he he and Ivan Moffat, who was the writer of that episode, and they say the most flattering things about me. That was an episode with uh, Robert Robert Wagner. Yeah, Robert Wagner, yes, who was actually a crowd shot in himself. He was quite a big man. Yeah. It was an episode, yes, which came out extremely well. Um, we shot part of it at uh, Ealing Film Studios. Um, what we did was, the set was, Coldis was actually constructed on the set, um, on, sorry, on the stage at, at Ealing. Uh, the doors, the double doors were uh, thrown open and the set was continued out in the open so jeeps and tanks could drive in. Uh, it, it was it was quite a big production. We had cranes, we had Robert Wagner, uh, and <laughs> the poor the poor Brits kind of were intimidated intimidated by Robert Wagner. And uh, I think Natalie Wood also came and visited the set at one moment. Well, in one of your episodes of um, Told It, the main guest star is Patrick Trout. Uh, yes, yes, I've, I've just been looking through my scrapbook, and lo and behold, this. Patrick Troughton's name, yes, yes, I did. I was living in Kew Gardens, and he was living a few doors down from where uh, we were. Uh, Obviously, prior to uh, Colditz and Secret Army, we've touched on the fact that you're a production assistant, but um, Mm -hmm. some of the listeners might not know what. So what exactly did that job involve when you were working on, on, say, a Doctor Who like the Crusade? for? Right. Well, in in Australian terms, production assistant is something completely different, but the equivalent would be first assistant director. Um, In other words, with with Douglas, especially with Douglas, I really liked the man. Um, With Douglas, it was, um, I I was allowed to direct all the extras and to uh, coordinate all the movements across screen whilst he concentrated on uh, the main action or the Daleks or whatever it might be. And my job was to make sure that the background worked uh, in tandem with what he had in mind. Well, you're you're down in um, as a, as a factoid in Doctor Who history. I don't know if you knew this, is because um, I, I think Doug, another occasion where you uh, impressed Douglas was when in the Crusade William Russell refused to have his uh, <laughs> hands daubed in honey and ants attack it, and so you gamely stepped in. <laughs> oh yes, God, I was so keen. I was so keen. I would have done anything. Uh, um, well, Mr. Russell saw. The, uh, he, he must have read the script, obviously he read the script, he arrived at Ealing, uh, the set was built as a middle of Sahara, so there was sand, and uh, there was a back, uh, background to the sand, it all looked as though uh, the, um, the sand went on forever, and the story was, he was caught by the Saracens, who then pegged him out in the sand, um, covered him with honey, and then get 
the ants to crawl over him and um, terrible death, terrible death. So the day arrived and of course I had to go and get the ants in, in the first place. It was winter, I had to go and get the ants from, I think it was Kew Gardens. So I got the ants and uh, Mr. Russell looked at the set, looked at the ants and they were big. He said, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing this. So Dougie said, well, how can we get around it? And I said, oh, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. So they shot uh, Mr. Russell's face reacting to my hand being covered with honey and then ants nibbling away at, at my skin. Um, I think it was worthwhile. I wouldn't do it now, but I did it then. <laughs> and um, it was a script that Douglas Canfield particularly liked, The Crusade. Um, uh, do, you yes. think, do you think it was a good show? What I remember of it then, yes, but look, the, the thing is, if you look at those episodes now, you think, why did we cut so slowly? Why couldn't we chosen? Why couldn't we have chosen different angles? All the whys come to the fore, but things have to be viewed in context. I think. Um, if I look at some of my other shows, I, I keep wondering why I chose to be on a medium shot instead of a close-up and quicker cutting. But, you know, that was the way things were done in those days. So you can't go back and re-edit stuff. However, there are some shows that I still kind of like looking at uh, because of the writing of it. And these are the Michael J. Bird shows, Aphrodite Inheritance, um, shows like that. He also wrote uh, The Lotus Eaters, of course. Oh, he did. Yes, yes. Wonder Wentham and um, Ian Henry. Yes, yes, indeed. He, he was a, a he was a particularly inspiring man and a particularly dangerous man to be around. I think. Again, I had this this wonderful relationship with him. I I feared him. And I I liked him so much and I respected him so much. Yes. And uh, what other? So uh, we associate you with with Douglas, obviously, because he did the Doctor Who's that you worked on. But were there any other directors at the BBC that you you felt you particularly learned from for when you then became a director? I worked with Bernard Hepton when he was a director, and I worked with him when he was an actor. I learned more from him as an actor than as a director. Um, no, I think. No, I think Douglas was was the one who was totally open to me, uh, whereas all the others kind of kept uh, kept so, so many ideas to themselves and kind of sprung it on me at the last moment. Um, I don't know whether they were afraid or whatever. Douglas certainly was never afraid. He was wonderful in sharing stuff. And, and what sort of character was he? Douglas... <clears throat> difficult to describe there was an internal life that tried to escape his being I think um, and did not always succeed um, there was something strange going on in, in the background and he would he would actually welcome being uh, in the studio or on the film set uh, that was his kind of home and so Time, time came to move on, and you, as you say, you got got promoted to, to to direct, and you did things like Softly, Softly, and Troubleshooters, and Sherlock Holmes. So, what what productions stick out as the ones that you sort of learnt the most from, or that you think you particularly attract? Uh, Sherlock Holmes, because of Mr. Cushing. Um, Mr. Cushing was a wonderful actor and a wonderful person. 
um, he was quite a big, big name in the film industry in those days. And um, I thought, well, you know, what can I... Uh, what can I do with this incredible man? You know, I'll be shown up to be nothing. Not so, not so at all. He was wonderful. He was so giving. And again, after the series has finished, Helen Cushing wrote me a most wonderful letter, his wife. Um, I almost burst into tears every time I read the letter because it is, it speaks about a side of me that I never thought I had. Um, so it's, it's extremely flattering. Uh, the one that I did not get on well was Mr. Ray Barrett. And yet he was a good actor. He was an extremely good actor. Um, he was um, one of the brothers in Brothers Karamazzo. Um, and I was um, a PA in those days. Uh, and uh, he was absolutely fantastic in that. But I'm, I'm surprised then, because you then did cast him um, in Colditz, in the Gambler episode. So yes, I did. Yes, I did. So, so a good actor is better on the than a good actor, but a miserable person. <laughs> Quite often the two don't go together. You don't necessarily get nice people in there and, and have them as a good actor as well. Um, quite often they're dangerous. And he, he, there was a dangerous element about him which actually worked uh, for the script. Worked on screen. Mm. Uh, and you did quite a few of The Expert as well with Mario Scoring. Yes, they called him Murray's Boring, which is very, very unfair. Um, and when you look at episodes like uh, NCIS, which is, you know, they treat the same thing. Yeah. I wish I could have done something like that. Um, the most dangerous thing we ever did was to reconstruct the glass bottle which had been used to um, smash somebody over the head and the reason for the reconstruction was that it would uh, have the fingerprint of the uh, wicked person who did this deed um, I just wish we could have gone out and done all the things that CSI and all the others do um, well, you, and you, you also did, you directed a film which is an interesting confluence of Doctor Who because it was, was written by Olaf Pooley who, who, who was, oh God, yes, 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 in a Doctor Who story called Inferno. Um, and Gail Beaumont, his, his wife, uh, was the producer on that. Uh, Olaf wrote the script. Um, Gail, uh, Gay, Gay Beaumont decided to uh, produce it. Um, but unfortunately she also cast him her husband as one of the leading uh, actors in it which isn't good practice because you can't go to the producer and say listen so and so is uh, playing up can you do something about it because that's the other half of the relationship sure yeah and that, that is quite difficult but Yvonne Mitchell was in that film and she was absolutely wonderful it's, it's very strange with all these big names, the really good names, they are also quite good people. They don't have anything to prove, they just do it. Yvonne arrived on set, ready for a night shoot, and uh, she was standing in front of our great big powerful light, and I saw whiskers. And I, and I thought, what do I do about it? And then the cameraman looked at me and said, no, 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 we, we, we can't shoot her any closer. Look, moustache, little beard so what to do and so I went up to Yvonne and said Yvonne I have to tell you you've got whiskers in the beard she said oh, darling no, no problem at all has anybody got a shaver and off she went and shaved herself <laughs> wonderful woman absolutely wonderful woman the other sci-fi thing that I know listeners will um, uh, want me to mention 
uh, even though you only did one episode of it, but it's a very distinctive, visually very distinctive episode of Blake 7. I, I wanted to challenge, and I wanted to kind of do things differently. Look, in those days, we had five very, very heavy cameras that moved like, I don't know, like dinosaurs across the floor. And uh, the story was, we were, uh, there was this spaceship, and there's this, this guy trapped in the spaceship, and he's calling Cape Canaveral or base, whatever it was. And I thought, well, we just can't do a three-wall, that is, you know, the, the fourth wall is where the cameras sit. So I said, look, I need a portable camera. And everybody threw up their arms in horror and said, well, portable cameras are for outside use, not for studio. I said, well, why not? So I finally persisted and I got a portable camera and I said, right, I want a four-wall set. So that's what happened. They built a four-wall set, locked us, locked uh, the cameraman and the actor in the set so the camera and the actor could walk 360 degrees around the set, which was quite incredible in those days. Now it's dead simple. Now you do it every day. But then it was totally new, and people said, no, you can't do it, lighting will have a problem, sound will have a problem, blah, blah, blah. So I said, no, they won't. And of course, I was actually trembling inside, you know, every chance to fail. But it didn't fail, it actually succeeded. Then, of course, there was Jacqueline Pierce, the queen of the universe, the wicked queen of the universe. Now, before I came to to uh, work on the episode and I heard that Jacqueline Pierce uh, was going to be there I thought no 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 I, I can't do this I can't cope with this incredibly difficult woman this is what I'd heard so on the day of uh, the first day of rehearsal I arrived and there was this demure Jacqueline sitting in the corner and she introduced herself and Jacqueline's got this incredible voice you know it's chocolate brown it's all there and it's all seductive and uh, we became the best of friends and she was absolutely marvellous um, in fact we became such good friends that she phoned me one day she was living on the MTV which is the uh, military motorboat I think it is in, in Chelsea it was midwinter it was snowy it was cold there was a blizzard blowing and she phoned me and said, darling, darling, come and help me. So I said, Jacqueline, what's the matter? She said, there's snow coming into my boat. So I took my toolkit and uh, that's my hammer, chisel and all that and went over to her. And uh, now her boat had a kind of um, front door which had been torn off. So the snow was driving into the interior and there was Jacqueline sitting at the in, in the middle of this empty area on a pot-bellied stove, virtually hugging this pot-bellied stove, burning photographs and love letters. And she was crying. She was wearing a, a fur coat and probably nothing beneath. That could have been my imagination. So she was sitting there crying and tearing up photographs. Her previous amour had absconded with all her furniture and uh, left her there and disappeared. And this was high drama. And I stood back and I thought, my God, this is a wonderful story. Where's the camera? Why don't we shoot this? It was just so good. Jacqueline was always a very good performer. And, and was the BBC what, a, a sort of nurturing environment then? Was it a good place to work? Yes, it was. Uh, absolute paradise. Look, even in Australia, I had 50, after the Beeb, I had 15 years in Australia, and when I came to Australia and worked on the various sets that I did here, um, 
we had something like two or three outside rehearsal days. Now they don't have a single outside rehearsal day. The actors arrive, they're plonked in a position, they move on certain lines, they're told when to move, and that is it. In the UK, for an hour's set to say, we have ten days rehearsal, which is absolutely incredible. And people say, oh, too short, too short. If they could only see what we do now, to the Dalek master plans, it had the Daleks and William Hartnell and uh, <laughs> and uh, Kevin Stoney and Nicholas Courtney. Oh, uh, indeed, Kevin Stoney. Oh God, I, I worked with Kevin Stoney on quite a number of things. I love that voice, deep down voice, uh, and the glass eye. I don't know whether he's still alive. No, he oh, died only very re- relatively recently, though, only two or three years ago. Ah, oh, really. Oh dear, here I am on this side of the pond and they're over there. You know, I wish I could go and say hello to them and ask them for forgiveness for my rudeness <laughs> as a young director. You know, as a young director, you survive by being very arrogant because you're so unsure of yourself. Um, and this is where Douglas Canfield comes in again. Um, he showed me how to be sure of myself. If Douglas taught me anything, it was how to organise a shoot. He was meticulous. I'm probably repeating myself, but look, Douglas was wonderful at organising stuff. He had frames drawn out as to what he wanted to see, where he wanted to see, and he knew exactly what he wanted. And I don't know um, exactly how many people have worked on both Doctor Who and Home and Away, but I suspect it's not many, and you are one of them. Indeed, my first experience with Australian soaps was unbelievable. Uh, I kept asking for outside rehearsals. They said, no outside rehearsals. You have, uh, you have uh, a walkthrough in this particular room. Uh, the sets weren't really marked out. It was kind of rough and ready. So, okay. I said, now what about a camera script? Because that would be... What you did was you prepared a meticulous camera script and that would be typed out and then presented to the vision mixer and to the camera people. And here they said, uh-uh, we don't have time for a camera script. At the most you can, uh, you can make camera cards for the camera people so they know what shot is to be called next. Oh, that was an incredible re-education for me, having been kind of conditioned by the BBC way of doing things properly. And believe me, the BBC did do things properly, even though at the time one kind of, uh, one was kind of criticising and and arguing against it. But in retrospect, these were the halcyon days of British television. Well, and not just the BBC, because I I noticed I was watching uh, The Sweeney the other day and uh, up popped your your name, and that's a series that has has stood the test of time and uh, uh, and it's very fondly remembered. Oh, God, there's another story about the Sweeney. The one thing that uh, the censors, and uh, that is something we kind of fought against in those days, not just Mary Whitehouse, but uh, the self-censoring. I had an episode in which um, the baddies have a shootout in this pub, okay? So my innocent party is sitting at a table, a round white table, and uh, the shooting starts. And I've been told, you do not show any um, bullets going into people. 
not like we do nowadays and NCIS and all that. You mustn't do that. So I thought, well, look, I've got to show the result. If somebody pulls a trigger, the result must be shown in some way. You just can't do a Mary Poppins on this. So what I did was, instead of um, instead of doing um, anything like, like bodies falling, I showed blood spattering on the white table, on the upturned white table. Oh my God, did that cause a consternation. <gasps> this is the most violent thing we have ever seen. And guess what they did? They asked me to reshoot. I said, no, I can't reshoot. A, I'm out of my contract. I'm contracted to somebody else. And I could have, of course. And B, I don't want to. I think that is a good way of doing it. So they got somebody else, I don't know who, to reshoot that moment. It looks so tame and so lame. So somebody points a gun, pulls the trigger, we have a bang and there's no result. Not even shadow play. Not even that. Um, it was a time when people were afraid of their own shadows. But that was in the beam. That was um, ITV, right? The IT platforms. Um. So obviously it's now, you know, it's 2013, I've, I've called you up ac- across the pond, to, across the world, to talk about uh, your career. So what, what, do you, what do you get up to nowadays? Well, I, I'm, I'm doing a couple of things. Um, being a senior myself, uh, I'm looking after a group of senior citizens and teaching them Photoshop and After Effects. In addition to that, I'm looking af- uh, after a couple of youngsters, um, who are going to a film school and they're being taught nothing. Um, well, uh, thank you very much for your time. I have the two questions that I always um, uh, uh, leave with at the end. The first is because you've kindly given your time, so I ask you Vic, to, uh, to nominate a charity to which they can donate. Well, the Hart Foundation would be a great place to uh, help. Um, they do amazing research and uh, Having been the recipient of their generosity, I had a double bypass. Um, I can only marvel at their skill. Excellent. Well, let's hope that people do that. And uh, uh, the final question is that um, Doctor Who is 50 years old this year. Yes. And so the fans are out there um, looking for reasons to celebrate. So do you, have a, do you have a message to all the Doctor Who fans who've been listening to the podcast on this, the 50th year of Doctor Who? I'm very glad that some of the episodes are missing because in your imagination they're probably far, far better than they were in reality. That's the best spin on the missing episodes I've heard. Brilliant. <coughs> well, Vic Ritellis, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, Toby. Brilliant. I really appreciate that. That was a great interview. I hope that was okay for you. Absolutely. No. Good, good, good. Many, many thanks to Vic. What a gentleman. Uh, now, I don't know what order these are going to go out in because I'm slightly wary of releasing the three Skype calls that I did 
next to each other in a two-day period, one after the other, lest you think this whole project is going to sound like it was recorded in a throbbing sock. So let's just say, as we don't know what the order is going to be, that future, or maybe even past, podcasts will include an actor who was court-martialed by the French army, uh, an uncredited extra who went on to host his own television series and found his experience on Who a somewhat arousing, and someone from behind the scenes who remembers squabbling chumblies. Oh, it's all fun when who's round. Uh, follow me at Toby Haydock, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E on Twitter, and do find my website, which is www.tobyhaydock.com. Vic's charity was the Heart Foundation. Uh, now, you can find them at www.bhf.org.uk, but I'm aware that that is the English version, and as Vic is based in Australia, uh, and you are from there, or want to do as maybe he probably intended, you can go to www.heartfoundation, or one word, .org.au, which is the Australian branch, as it were, and I know we have listeners in the States as well, and if we... uh, Well, I'm no Little Englander, so if we want to make this of international use, uh, www.theheartfoundation, all one word, .org, is uh, the US branch of of that organisation. So um, any of those, really, um, or not at all, it's up to you. There is no pressure to do so, but if you can, please do. And uh, join me for another Toby Haydokes Who's Round at some juncture. playing Rossini. Yes, that might be it, elaborated the doctor. Someone's always playing Rossini. He's a hugely popular component of the light orchestral repertoire. We need to check concert houses, nightclubs, jazz venues, anywhere someone might be playing Rossini. His eyes glinted. Let's make like blue-bottomed blue bottles, shall we? Helpless to resist, Charlie picked up her cavalry officer's heels and followed the doctor as he galloped off into the West End night. (gasps) Oh! The next thing Charlie knew, pretty much, it was morning, in an unfamiliar flat on an unfamiliar couch. Well, where the devil... Will you stop it with the Rossini? Sorry, did I wake you? Didn't realise I was doing it. Think about that tune. Once it's in your head... It's hard to get it out, I know. Well, it's your fault, miss. You were humming it in your sleep, best part of the night. Suppose I must have just picked it up, like I seem to have picked up... you. Excuse me? You've picked up no one, sir. Oh, Lord, I didn't mean... No, sorry. Don't you remember getting here? From the music hall? Wherever here is, no. Just my little old bachelor flat in Portland Place. Look, that's a broadcasting house. And the little old bachelor is? Hilary Hammond. At your service. Doctor Who Enemy Aliens. Performed by India Fisher with Michael Maloney as Hilary Hammond. <laughs>